folks, welcome to the 130th episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray, and this week we're going to have a look at a recent discussion on the Linux kernel mailing lists around the enabling of the dash W error flag, which essentially turns compiler warnings into errors in the build and sort of stops the build and I guess the fallout that that caused and uh, all of that. So that is kind of interesting because it, I guess it's illustrative of a lot of different um, ways that developers and companies try to turn on new CI systems and the kind of effect that that has. So I thought, yeah, that'll be interesting once to talk through. Plus, we've got the usual roundup of vulnerability fixes to go through from the past week. Uh, of those, there was 15 unique CVEs addressed. And the first one of those we're going to go into is in OpenSSL. So this was an update for OpenSSL for our 1404 extended security maintenance customers. Uh, this was actually in response to a fix that we did uh, last week. Uh, we backported a bunch of patches to that and one of them uh, had a typo in it, unfortunately, that introduced a regression uh, where ASN1 strings uh, would not be printed when they were expected to be printed. Essentially, the length of them would be calculated as zero. So that was fixed to make sure they were properly printed again. Uh, after that, we had an update for the Linux kernel. Again, this is for our extended security maintenance customers. So that's 1404 and 1604 extended security maintenance. Uh, in this case, it was specific to uh, the AMD uh, implementation of the KVM subsystem. So this is uh, virtualization, basically using the particular virtualization extensions built into AMD processors. Uh, and this actually relates to nested virtualization. So I guess it's uh, more of an issue if you are allowing other people to do virtualization uh, running your VMs on your platform. So if you're a hosting provider, basically, this one is for you to listen to. In this case, uh, it would fail to validate particular operations that could be performed by a guest VM. And in particular, uh, it would allow a guest VM to enable the advanced virtual interrupt controller for a nested VM. So essentially, if you're allowing people uh, you know, to run VMs on your uh, in host, if you're allowing people to run VMs on your hardware and then they themselves are spawning VMs within them, they can then enable this uh, interrupt controller for one of their nested VMs and then that nested VM actually can write directly to some parts of host memory as a result. And this then allows them obviously to you know, modify memory on the host, probably get code execution on the host directly. So getting code execution on your bare metal. So not a good one, but that has been fixed for the kernel in those extended security maintenance releases. So you are a bit safer now. After that was an update for HA proxy, uh, high availability proxy. Uh, this is for uh, the more recent versions of that. So in Ubuntu releases 2004 long-term support and 2104. In this case, there was an issue to overflow in the handling of header name lengths. So what would happen here is if you could craft a header uh, element that uh, you know, tickled this, essentially what would happen is the most significant bit of the length of the name of the header would slip into the least significant bit of the value uh, or the length of the value part of that header element. As such, you could craft what was a valid request that would then uh, inject a dummy content length on the input because it would you know, do this wrong uh, overflow and, you know, and tickle the wrong or lead into the wrong um, length value there. Uh, what would happen then is you know, that header would then get reproduced on output as well as the original header length. As such, then uh, you would essentially generate a second request that uh, would get no response back to the sender, but you would end up sending on a second request uh, that would have a different length value in it. So you could get essentially a crafted request that was a subset of the original one, and that would then bypass potentially ACL checks and the like. So essentially a way of doing request smuggling. Uh, quite complicated, this one, but yeah, so the researchers that came 
came up with this. Uh, my hat's off to them. That one would have needed a lot of careful thought and analysis of the various layers of code in HAProxy to be able to uh, trigger that. But yeah, that was actually in response to uh, a bunch of vulnerabilities we saw a few weeks ago around HTTP2 handling. Uh, and yeah, this is another one in the same vein. Uh, after that was an update for GNU CPIO. Uh, this is you know the venerable tool used for handling CPIO archives. In this case, uh, it had an integer overflow, which could lead to a heat buffer overflow in the handling of pattern files. So uh, to CPO, you can pass the dash E command line flag, which allows uh, you to specify a file name that then has a list of patterns that we'll uh, look at. And so when it goes to extract the CPO archive, it will only extract files whose names match the patterns that were in that file. Uh, and so obviously if you can craft a uh, specially uh, crafted uh, pattern file and get someone to use that, you can then you know, extract or you can get this heat buffer overflow triggered and get potentially code execution as a result uh, in CPIO. Now it's not really clear if you can easily abuse that because I don't know how often uh, people are handing each other crafted pattern files and the like and getting them run, but yeah, you are a bit safer now as a result of this one being fixed. An update for Open vSwitch was after that. One CVE here fixed for, again, the more recent versions of Open vSwitch in Ubuntu releases 2004 long-term support and 2104. Uh, there was a use after free in the decoding of the raw NCAP actions. So essentially a remote attacker could craft, you know, especially crafted raw NCAP action and get, uh, you know, this use after free triggered. Being a use after free, uh, this is the kind of thing that will usually just trigger a crash, but you know, if they can uh, corrupt memory in the right way, they can possibly get code execution as a result. Uh, moving on, we had an update for PySAML2. Uh, this is a Python implementation of uh, SAML2 handling. And this uh, vulnerability fix went all the way back to 1604 extended security maintenance plus 1804 long-term support, 2004 long-term support, and the 2104 releases of Ubuntu. Again, a single CVE here fixed. Uh, and now this relates to, uh, again, obviously the handling of SAML documents and the way that in particular the cryptographic signatures were validated on them uh, by PySAML2. Now, uh, the way it does that is it actually uses the XMLSEC binary to do that, uh, which is provided by the XMLSEC package. So it hands off uh, the document or the, you know, the XML to that and says basically go and validate uh, the signature on this. Uh, however, by default, XMLSEC will use any type of uh, signature that it finds within the document to validate it against. Uh, whereas in SAML, you meant to use uh, the X509 certificate that should be embedded there and validate the signature against that. Uh, you know, if there was just a HMAC embedded in the document, it would validate that. And so an attacker could obviously craft their own uh, SAML document, append whatever signature, uh, X509 certificate they wanted to it, inject their own HMAC as well that validated correctly, and it would get validated uh, as you know, saying it was all good, even though obviously the X509 certificate uh, that was in there would not correctly validate it. Uh, so yeah, that was fixed to make sure that the correct command line arguments were specified to XMLSEC to make sure that it would actually validate it based on the X509 certificate as a result. After that was an update for SSSD. Uh, in this case, uh, there was a bunch of vulnerabilities fixed, but the most interesting one was around possible shell command injection through the SSL control uh, binary. So this has a bunch of subcommands that you can call on it, in particular logs fetch or cache expire subcommands. So if you could trick root into running a crafted version of one of these commands, you could then you know, get or trick them to running a crafted version that has shell command injection in it, uh, and then it would run as root, and then you would get root code execution as a result. Uh, and this all occurred because it was using the system 
system call to uh, evaluate this subcommand. So uh, an attacker could craft one that would then get past a system. System actually spawns a shell and gives it whatever string you told it to to the shell, and you can then obviously you know, inject whatever commands you want into there uh, as a result. Uh, it was fixed instead to use the more safer and common pattern of fork and exec to do that. Uh, exec takes an array of arguments, so it doesn't allow you to you know, pass a full string. And obviously it doesn't go via a shell anyway to run that. It just gets run directly by the kernel. So much safer. And as I say, this is a common pattern for security vulnerabilities. These kind of things have been seen for years. Uh, system is known as a pretty unsafe way to essentially spawn another command. Fork and exec, obviously the much preferred way of doing that. And actually this is something that as a security team, we have a bunch of tools that specifically look for uses of the system call um, when we are auditing packages as part of the main inclusion review process, because it is a pretty obvious code smell of something that you shouldn't be doing and of poor quality code. So I guess it's interesting that uh, given that we know this is a common vulnerability that this has existed in SSSD for a bit, but yeah, it has been fixed now, which is good to see. Uh, mod auth melon was up after that, a single CVE here. Uh, again, this is the Apache component for handling SAML2 authentication. In this case, it failed to filter URLs that were uh, crafted to start with triple slash. Uh, so an attacker could craft a URL that specified a particular uh, you know, other domain and then get arbitrary redirect to that uh, as a result. So why is this uh, you know, important? So uh, basically from a security point of view, as an attacker, you could set up your own uh, phishing website that you know, obviously duplicated another website under whatever domain you've got. Uh, you then craft a URL to be sent to your victim that specifies the you know, trusted original URL as uh, the, you know, the link that it goes to, but then has this special return to parameter that points at your own uh, phishing website. The victim, they can you know, look at that URL and go, oh, it still points to you know, www.whatever they're expecting it to point to. So they think that's trustworthy. They click it and then they get arbitrarily redirected to your phishing site. And if they're not uh, quick enough to look up at the uh, address bar, they, you know, they won't see that they've been redirected to your uh, phishing site and you'll, they'll go and type in their credentials to log into there or, or whatever it is and you will get their credentials. You will have phished them uh, successfully. So yeah, uh, a good one to see this being fixed. Obviously, uh, you know, as much as we try to educate users to check links before they click them and the like, this is the kind of thing that uh, can easily get around that. So yeah, a good one to see this one being fixed. Uh, and last of all, we had an update to uh, the uh, libgd, the graphics library here. Uh, again, this goes all the way back to 1404 extended security maintenance plus 1604 extended security maintenance, 1804 and 2004 long-term support and the 2104 release. Uh, up being a image handling library written in C, again, we see the usual types of issues here. So um, out-of-bounds reads, out-of-bounds writes being fixed here. Um, it was interesting. I noticed that the upstream developers kind of disputed a bunch of these CVEs being assigned because they said, well, these are only in uh, the old uh, GD or GD2 image format handling. And they're now deprecated. You know, we're not really supporting those, so we shouldn't be assigning CVEs. But actually, this is the exact whole point of getting CVEs assigned so that people can know, well, there are security issues here. So yeah, this does a bit of a red flag. If you are uh, you know, processing untrusted uh, GD or GD2 image files, I suggest you don't do that now and you actually switch to more modern, actually supported image files if you can as a result, because yeah, this is likely to probably stop being supported by upstream sometime soon and not be getting security fixes as a result. And that is it for the week in security updates. 
Okay, so the other thing I wanted to talk about this week was uh, some discussion that went on uh, upstream in the Linux kernel development uh, mailing list around the handling of the dash W error uh, command line argument to GCC. And so this is something that essentially tells GCC for any warnings that you would normally generate about things that look bad in the code, turn them into an error and actually halt the build. And it was actually enabled by default by Linus Torvalds directly. He doesn't often do a lot of patches himself nowadays. He's usually involved in merging a lot of things and kind of handling the coordinated development of the kernel. But this is one that he purposefully put in himself as a result from uh, some patches from Case Cook at Google, which uh, unfortunately introduced a heap of new warnings. Uh, Linus said, look, I've wanted a clean build for a long time. And so as a result, I'm just going to turn this thing on. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there was a lot of pushback from a heap of different people because this immediately broke a heap of CI systems that are automatically compiling the kernel with various configurations and the like. Um, because you know the kernel is a huge thing, it has lots of different code all over the place, it has a huge number of configuration options that can turn on and off different bits of code getting compiled or not, and obviously it has even a heap of different architectures that it gets supported on too. So there's this combinatorial explosion of different combinations that you can have the kernel being compiled under and you, know, you get different warnings as a result or you get warnings or not as a result depending on which of these you run it under. And if you're Linux, you're probably building on AMD 64, you know, with a uh, configuration that roughly suits your hardware, or maybe you're doing all mod config, so you're kind of building all the modules or something like that, you know, over a large array of things, but you're still not testing this huge array of different things. So he will see only a subset of the warnings that may be seen by others. And as a result, all these different builds suddenly broke overnight. And as again, there was a heap of pushback. Actually, it was interesting to see a lot of this discussion was driven by Google, I guess, because they are doing a lot of work. You know, obviously they are a huge consumer of the kernel, a huge uh, contributor to the development of it, but they're also doing a lot of work in terms of fuzzing uh, things nowadays and testing under a lot of different circumstances. And so, uh, you know, it was interesting to see some of this pushback from these Google developers who are those who've been advocating that uh, they should actually be trying to drive down warnings and things in the past. Uh, Linus wasn't too happy to hear that. He said, you are the kind of people that have been arguing for this kind of thing. Now you're telling me that I shouldn't be turning it on. But they kind of made the point that just turning it on arbitrarily like this is uh, quite unhelpful. It needs to be done in a much more controlled manner. So a uh, compromise was come up with, again, suggested by a different Google engineer, Marco Elver. Uh, he said this should only be enabled when uh, the compile test option is turned on. And this is a flag that's used to tell the kernel to compile everything uh, but even if it's not actually going to be used. And so almost no one actually has this turned on by default. It's only used if you are explicitly trying to compile the kernel and detect, say, new warnings or things like that. So exactly the kind of thing here that we're, that we're talking about, uh, you know, used in CI systems or by uh, other kernel developers or maintainers when they're, say, taking someone's patch and they want to make sure it hasn't introduced any new warnings and the like. Uh, but yeah, look, looking at this from, I guess, a more um, a wider perspective, it is you know, good to see that Linus in particular is focusing on this kind of stuff now, you know, saying he wants a cleaner build. Obviously, to get down to no warnings is great because then it makes it really easy to spot when a new warning gets introduced. If you have uh, a big code base with a lot of existing compiler warnings in it uh, and someone you know, introduces a change, introduces another warning that could actually say be a security vulnerability or the like, you're unlikely to be able to see that through the noise of all the existing warnings. So getting it down to zero and actually making it fail the build is a cool thing. You know, I think that sounds really good. But obviously, it's not really practical given the huge size and you know, the number of different combinations that you have the kernel running under. 
Um, and it reminded me, I guess, of uh, instances that I've been involved in in the past doing code development, particularly things like where you know, we had a large code base, uh, we brought in a tool, something like Coverity, that uh, you know, we were t telling uh, managers and staff, look, we need to get this tool, it's gonna help us uh, write better code, it's gonna detect errors and things automatically, you know, it's gonna save us time in the future because we won't be introducing vulnerabilities or introducing issues that then have to be fixed down the track or that then cause bugs for our customers. The problem is you get one of these tools in, you turn it on, and immediately there's a huge number of defects that it detects. And then you know the manager says, well, I thought this thing was gonna save me time, but now it's uh, you know, eating up a heap of time because now we need to go and fix all these things first before we can even start using it for new code. And so it is, uh, I guess, this tension that there is when you introduce um, you know, these kind of tools against an existing legacy code base. How do you do it in a way that uh, enables, uh, you know, it doesn't give you this immediate, you know, upfront huge piece of work to kind of get down to zero before you can even actually start to make use of the tool in anger. And yeah, I think it's really good to see that a compromise was reached in this case to kind of say, look, we're going to provide an option that turns it on by default if you want. Uh, and we're only going to turn that on by default, though, uh, ourselves, if you're actually running in this particular configuration. So I think a good compromise was reached upstream by the kernel. And I think, you know, it's the kind of thing that people need to be wary of if you are, uh, you know, developers that's advocating this kind of stuff uh, against your own code bases. You need to have a good understanding of how or what the impact may be when you introduce it and how you can do that in a way that doesn't cause a lot of friction and I guess a lot of um, anger from your co-workers and your managers and the like as a result. But yeah, overall, as I say, it is really cool to see that uh, Upstream Kernel is uh, trying to focus more and more on this kind of stuff because obviously the more that we can heed compiler warnings and the like, hopefully the more we can catch bugs and potential security issues before they actually get introduced and developed in the kernel. Okay, uh, so that's the end of that one. Uh, the other thing I did want to mention quickly is we are still hiring. We have open uh, position on our uh, certifications team for a Linux cryptography and security engineer. So if you want to work on uh, crypto and FIPS and uh, common criteria or disastig or CIS uh, hardening guides and that kind of thing for Ubuntu, I urge you to check out that in the show notes. Or if you want to come and help make Ubuntu more secure by introducing new security technologies or uh, helping us patch ongoing vulnerabilities and the like, we have opened a position for a generalist on our security team. So yeah, that one is also in the show notes. I urge you to check it out and apply. Okay, so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, as usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at securityubuntu.com. We also hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on the libero.chat IRC network. And we are at Ubuntu underscore sec on Twitter as well if you want to hit us up over there too. So thanks again, everyone, for listening for another week. It's been great doing this all again for you. Uh, until next time, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.